episode 32. At school, Julia had been captain of the hockey team and had won the gymnastics trophy two years running. She had been a troop leader in the spies and a branch secretary in the youth league before joining the junior anti-sex league. She had always borne an excellent character. She had even an infallible mark of good reputation, even been picked out to work in porno sex the subsection of the fiction department, which turned out cheap pornography for distribution among the proles. It was named Muck House by the people who worked in it, she remarked. There she had remained for a year, helping to produce booklets in sealed packets with titles like Spanking Stories or One Night in a Girls' School to be bought furtively by proletarian youths who were under the impression that they were buying something illegal. What are those books like, said Winston curiously. Oh, ghastly rubbish. They're boring, really. They only have six plots, but they swap them round a bit. Of course, I was only on the kaleidoscopes. I was never in the rewrite squad. I'm not literary, dear. Not even enough for that. He learned with astonishment that all the workers in Pornosec, except the heads of the department, were girls. The theory was that men, whose sex instincts were less controllable than those of women, were in greater danger of being corrupted by the filth they handled. They don't even like having married women there, she added. Girls are always supposed to be so pure. Here's one who isn't, anyway. She had had her first love affair when she was 16, with a party member of 60, who later committed suicide to avoid arrest. And a good job, too, said Julia. Otherwise, they'd have had my name out of him when he confessed. Since then, there had been various others. Life, as she saw it, was quite simple. You wanted a good time. They, meaning the party, wanted to stop you having it. You break the rules as best you could. She seemed to think it just as natural that they should want to rob you of your pleasures as that you should want to avoid being caught. She hated the party and said so in the crudest words, but she made no general criticism of it. Except where it touched upon her own life, she had no interest in party doctrine. He noticed that she never used newspeak words, except the ones that had passed into everyday use. She had never heard of the Brotherhood and refused to believe in its existence. Any kind of organized revolt against the party, which was bound to be a failure, struck her as stupid. The clever thing was to break the rules and stay alive all the same. He wondered vaguely how many others like her there might be in the younger generation. People who had grown up in the world of the revolution, knowing nothing else, accepting the party as something unalterable, like the sky not rebelling against its authority, but simply evading it as a rabbit dodges a dog. They did not discuss the possibility of getting married. It was too remote to be worth thinking about. No imaginable committee would ever sanction such a marriage, even if Catherine, Winston's wife, could somehow have been gotten rid of. It was hopeless, even as a daydream. What was she like? Your wife, said Julia. 
she was, mm, do you know the new speak word, good thinkful, meaning naturally orthodox, incapable of thinking a bad thought? No, I didn't know the word, but I know the kind of person right enough. He began telling her the story of his married life, but curiously enough, she appeared to know the essential parts of it already. She described to him, almost as though she had seen or felt it, the stiffening of Catherine's body as soon as he touched her, the way in which she still seemed to be pushing him from her with all her strength, even when her arms were clasped tightly round him. With Julia, he felt no difficulty in talking about such things. Catherine, in any case, had long ceased to be a painful memory and become merely a distasteful one. I could have stood it if it hadn't been for one thing, he said. He told her about the frigid little ceremony that Catherine had forced him to go through on the same night every week. She hated it, but nothing would make her stop doing it. She used to call it, but she'll never guess, our duty to the party, said Julia promptly. How did you know that? I've been at school too, dear. Sex talks once a month for the over-sixteens, and in the youth movement, they rub it into you for years. I dare say it works in a lot of cases, but of course you never can tell. People are such hypocrites. She began to enlarge upon the subject. With Julia, everything came back to her own sexuality. As soon as this was touched upon in any way, she was capable of great acuteness. Unlike Winston, she had grasped the inner meaning of the party's sexual puritanism. It was not merely that the sex instinct created a world of its own, which was outside the party's control, and which therefore had to be destroyed if possible. What was more important was that sexual privation induced hysteria, which was desirable because it could be transformed into war fever, and leader worship. The way she put it was, when you make love, you're using up energy, and afterwards you feel happy and you don't give a damn for anything. They can't bear you to feel like that. They want you to be bursting with energy all the time. All this marching up and down and cheering and waving flags is simply sex gone sour. If you're happy inside yourself, why should you get excited about Big Brother or the three-year plans or the two-minute saint and all the rest of their bloody rot? That was very true, he thought. There was a direct, intimate connection between chastity and political orthodoxy. For how could the fear, the hatred, and the lunatic credulity which the party needed in its members be kept at the right pitch? except by bottling down some powerful instinct and using it as a driving force. The sex impulse was dangerous to the party and the party had turned it to account. They had played a similar trick with the instinct of parenthood. The family could not actually be abolished and indeed people were encouraged to be fond of their children in almost the old fashioned way. The children, on the other hand, were systematically turned against their parents and taught to spy on them and report their deviations. The family had become, in effect, an extension of the thought police. 
It was a device by means of which everyone could be surrounded night and day by informers who knew them intimately.